Heavenly Father, we give you praise, honor, and glory for being a good and righteous and holy God. And we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together to partake in your means of grace that you've ordained for your church. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray as we open it up today and enter into systematic theology, you'd give us clarity of thought so that we may rightly divide your word, that we may proclaim your gospel and contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, we're going to be starting a new packet. I think it's a good term for it. It's entitled Systematic Theology. But notice the subtitle is Are You a Calvinist? And I want to tell you why we're going to be doing this class. The impetus behind it or the reason behind it is really twofold. First of all, Bob and I had read a book And the book is actually put out by several discernment ministries. The book is entitled Calvinism, None Dare Call It Heresy. Well, the book was so bad that we thought it deserved a response. And let me explain why. This man takes issue with Calvin, and we have no issue with taking issue with Calvin. But sadly, in this man's book, his name is Bob Kirkland, he takes issue with Calvin precisely where Calvin was right. Namely, that salvation is by faith alone and that only by God's grace alone. Now, this man will say, yes, salvation is by faith, but he ends up attacking the doctrine of grace by attacking the doctrine of election. So, sadly, the very area that Calvin was most correct on, this man rebukes. But then there are a lot of areas that Calvin was not correct on biblically and this man doesn't address. And we thought, well, if this is going to come out through our discernment ministries, we think that the church could use better discernment. Second, I can't tell you how many times I as a pastor, I know Bob deals with this, perhaps the elders, the other elders as well, were often asked the question, let me put it up on the screen, are you a Calvinist? They're asking that question, but what they're really asking is, do you believe in the doctrine of predestination like Calvin taught? When most people are asking us, are you a Calvinist? What they're really asking is, do you believe that God sovereignly chooses to enable some to believe the scriptures while sovereignly allowing others to remain in their sin? That's what they're really asking. And so if we say yes, unwittingly we're signing off onto all of Calvinism because Calvinism is a shorthand summary of the doctrine of election But there's a lot of other things that Calvin taught that we do not agree with. And so this packet in systematic theology is really designed to show where we think Calvin was right biblically, but also the areas where they are wrong. Because we have such affinity towards the Reformation, we want to clearly delineate where we think the Reformers were right and where the Reformers are wrong. One thing that we all should agree on is that salvation is by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas of the Reformation. And so you'll hear Bob and I not defending TULIP per se, but we will be defending the five solas of the Reformation. So that's what we're going to be doing. Now, broadly speaking, as we're doing systematic theology, we're not going to be covering every aspect of theology and anthropology and all the things that go involved with a systematic study. But here are the three areas that we'll be covering. First of all, soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And 
there is more than just justification involved with this doctrine. For example, you have the doctrines of election, the doctrines of reprobation, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, regeneration, atonement, justification, sanctification, I would put in there. All of this is part of soteriology. And so we'll be handling those doctrines. Second, we're going to be talking about ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. So we'll be looking at definitions of what the church is, the distinctions between the church and Israel, the means of grace, which are the means that God uses to sanctify, the, um, the ordinances like uh, the Lord's Supper. We'll be talking about the differences between us and Calvin on that. Uh, baptism, who are the proper recipients of baptism. All of that is, in my mind, involved with ecclesiology. How is it that we do church? Meaning when you have the assembly of believers together, what does it look like? The third, of course, is eschatology. We have significant differences with Calvin and the Reformed tradition in the areas of eschatology, which is the study of the last times. Now, I won't go in depth and depth because we've already done a lot of that in our studies in Revelation, but we will show the differences again between the Reformed tradition and what we believe here at Gospel of Grace. So these are the three big areas that we're going to be covering. By the way, one of the big issues in eschatology, of course, is the millennium. And one of the reasons that's a big issue is because the Reformed tradition typically sees the church as replacing Israel. They see, in a sense, that we're living spiritually in this millennial kingdom. There is no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. So what we have to do, then, is deal with, does the church really replace Israel? Is it really true? Now, what's interesting is in history, one thing I think the reformers were correct, at the, at the end of the day, there's only one people of God. There's the people of God who are saved from their sins by trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So think about Abraham. Jesus said in John 8.56, Abraham rejoiced to see his day. He sought from afar, it says, and he was glad. So think about Abraham looked forward to the day of the cross. You and I look back to the day of the cross, but it's the one act by the one Savior that saves us, and it's by faith alone. So the Reformed tradition is very good on that. In fact, I would take issue with dispensationalists, some who in the past have claimed that there was one plan of salvation for the Jews and a different for the Gentiles. The problem is, is that yes, there's one people of God, but as the people of God who are saved by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, we are grafted into the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those promises haven't been gotten rid of. They're still with us. So when Jesus Christ comes, he really is going to establish the promises of Israel. We're partakers of, of them. And only those who trust in Jesus Christ are going to be partakers of them. So you can see how eschatology, ecclesiology are really related. If you don't understand the relationship between the church and Israel, you're going to end up having, that's ecclesiology, you're going to have a wayward eschatology. Any thoughts, Bob, thus far? I think, uh, thank you, very good. I think we also should emphasize that really Luther deserves more uh, credit about yeah. the doctrines of the solas 
Amen. And because he debated against Rome on this yeah. before Calvin. That's right. That's yeah, right. he was before Calvin. That's right. And so the main uh, document, I, I didn't bring it with me, but I have a book by Luther called The Bondage of the Will. So the debate started between Luther, yeah. who taught that salvation was a work of God alone yeah. and not a cooperative effort between God and man. Yeah, Synergism, that was what Rome taught. That's right. And then Erasmus, who, who taught the freedom of the will. Yeah, amen. And so to really get to the basis of it, you got to go back to Luther and Erasmus. Exactly. And the debate with Rome. Amen. And Luther went back to Paul's right. teachings in That's Scripture right. because they're biblical. That's right. So um, the reason we're talking about Calvin is that the, his name is like a, a fighting point. Yeah. That's right. You know, so people will say, oh, you're a Calvinist, and that means you're really evil. Right, right, exactly. Okay. And so that's why Eric and I often don't know how to answer that, because it's a loaded question. Yeah. The community I grew up in, there were Calvinists everywhere, Dutch Calvinists. Right. And they have a whole system that covers all of life. Yeah. Including the civil government and everything. Right, that's right. And... They're very clannish. Yeah. It's us four, no more. Right. And, and legalistic and everything under the sun. So I don't know how to answer it. Am I, am I going to plead guilty to all of that? Right. But right. I don't agree with it. But I don't want to deny the grace of God and salvation either. That's right. And so when I studied this, I spent 10 years on this because it was so much of a touchstone or battle point for people. Yeah. When it's in the 80s and 90s, I spent a lot of time on it. Right. I really spent time studying Luther yeah. and his debates and all of that. But Calvin would agree with Luther on the points of salvation by Amen. grace alone through faith alone. That's right. Which Paul said. The Arminians, would, and you'll probably get to what that means. Yeah, absolutely. But they would say, oh yeah, we believe that, but grace and faith no, there is no grace or faith until man adds his part to it. Right. Which is exactly what Rome taught. That's right. The only difference was Rome has a whole lot more parts for man. <laughs> Whereas right. your typical evangelical, man's part is just a little bit, but it's something. It's just we add our little part, like the hardener into the epoxy. Right. That makes it happen. So well said, Bob. Yeah. So so, you're so right, Bob. And so the reformers, what they were good on is teaching with something called monergism. So let's get our hands around just two concepts: synergism and monergism. Synergism is the doctrine that you are saved, justified before God, as a result of a cooperative effort between God and man. And so, yes, God may do 99.99% of it, but man at least contributes something to salvation. That's the doctrine of synergism. What the Reformers were very good on, whether it be Luther or Calvin, was the doctrine of monergism. Monergism says that salvation, and that mean, meaning we're justified and have right standing before God, is completely a work of God alone. That he takes dead sinners who could do nothing of their own prerogative 
and he brings them to life, that he gives them the faith that justifies them. That's where Calvin was right. Sadly, in our discernment ministries today, that's called heresy. That's called heresy. But what we're going to show you is that if one denies the monergistic work, that salvation is a work of God alone, you're no different than the disciple who left Jesus in John 6 because Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You see, the doctrine that salvation is only of God offended a wider group of disciples outside the twelve. And you remember what Jesus did? He looked at the 12 after the, the others left because they wouldn't receive the doctrines of grace. They wouldn't receive the idea that salvation is only of God. And Jesus looked at the disciples. He says, are you also going to leave? And you remember what Peter's response was? He says, Lord, where else do we have to go? For you're the one with the words of everlasting life. So that's what our response should be. Yes, Eric. You know, when you mention is John 6 you're talking about here, yes. right? Yeah. And... Uh, I've wrestled with, you know, the, the teachings that Jesus said, or first you must eat of me. You know, uh, there's yeah. some very difficult uh, language. And I think to myself, why didn't he say it a little differently? And it occurred to me, and I'm saying this a little bit of humor and, uh, and a little bit serious. Uh, I think Jesus wanted to make it difficult. I think he wanted to throw the gauntlet down and then challenge people and see who would stay with him. Because you remember what he said earlier, you know, and that's been kind of a stumbling block for a lot of people. Yeah. He was not talking about cannibalism, you know, or any of that. Absolutely. But I can't quote the scripture, you know, from memory. Uh, maybe some of you, a lot of people here could. Exactly. No, but it's almost, like he, it's almost like he put up an obstacle just to make it, you know, so that it would be even more by God's grace. Yeah, you know? Amen. Well said. Yeah, in John 6, I know uh, Adam, in fact, just came in the door. He did a wonderful teaching in John 6 for us some years ago. But remember, in John 6, Jesus is likening himself to the bread of life. So just as he was in the wilderness and sustained the people of God and gave them life, he is that bread now that comes down from heaven. And if you will trust in him, you're going to have eternal life. And the evidence of that is they're asking, what must we do to do the work of God? Because they want bread. Uh, Bob has pointed out much of the life of the ancients was, trying, was a, attempting to get food. They spent a lot of time trying to stay alive. And so the idea that they have now this Messiah, this king who could give them bread, this was very exciting to them. So instead of wanting salvation and justification, redemption from their sins, they want the bread maker. So they ask, what must we do that we do the work of God? And Jesus says in John 6, 29, very directly, this is that what you must do to do the work of God, that you believe in the one whom the Father has sent. So it's interesting is he's very direct at times, but you're right, he uses metaphor also to get his point across. Now, what's interesting is in passages like Matthew 13, remember he would speak in parables, but then he would pull his disciples aside and tell them plainly, and the disciples ask him, why do you do that? He says, because to them it has not been granted the knowledge of the kingdom of God, but to you it has been granted. There is sometimes a hardening in these parables that Jesus gives. But it's also a form of mercy. Now here, here's why. It's both and. The hardness of heart prevents Jesus from being direct with those who are in opposition. If he comes out and says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the son of God. You either believe in me for the forgiveness of sins or you're all going to perish. They're going to try to kill him immediately. 
So, in a sense, it's like in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah is commissioned to preach, knowing all the well or all the while it's going to just harden those who hear. In the same way, Jesus has that commissioning where he preaches and it hardens those who have ears that are blocked. But for those who have ears to hear, they're going to hear and they're going to come to faith. So, yes, the parables in themselves are a form of judgment upon those who have hardened hearts. Yes, Adam. I remember you, you probably had Ardell Canada yes. at Northwestern. Yeah. He, he spoke about the, the parables, and he kind of balanced between uh, the two poles, yeah. where you see that Jesus also challenges the people uh, to hear and understand the exactly. parables. Uh, those who have ears to, to hear, uh, let them hear. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's a work of God, of course. Yeah. And so there's both... Uh, there's both Hardening for hard hearts that uh, will not listen to his word, uh, a lot of times won't even consider it or, or th- uh, think upon it. I mean, for people who say that uh, that sin doesn't affect how you interpret, uh, th- that can be partially true, but see what liberal scholars, uh, how yeah. many of them twist and distort the scriptures and just don't even understand what they're reading sure, uh, because, right. because of their unbelief. Yeah. Uh, but th- there's both that, uh, the hardening, but also the challenge to hear and to, uh, to understand and to believe it. Yeah, amen. I think about that uh, parable that Jesus speaks of in Mark, the parable of the sower. And he tells his audience as he's preaching, he says, if you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any of the other parables. And what's very interesting is the point of that parable is that as the seed goes out, some are going to hear and it's going to fall on fertile ground, but the others won't, and they're going to perish. And the reason, yeah, I'm sorry, Bob. Okay, so the reason why that's such a, a seminal parable is Jesus showing that the kingdom is being built imperceptibly by man. In other words, as you get up in your day, you don't realize there's a kingdom that's being built, and it's being built by people believing this word that's being deposited. But there's others who are going to perish because they're rejecting it. And so Jesus is pointing out that if you don't understand that parable, if the seed goes out and it actually regenerates and brings life and brings some into the kingdom, you're not going to understand any of the other parables. It reveals and conceals. Amen. Well said. Yeah, Bob. Uh, John 6 is absolutely amazing. It's really one of the key chapters on this issue. It is. It is. Okay. Don't miss this important fact. John 6 is really showing us corporate solidarity. And the grumblers are doing the same thing that the wilderness wanderers did. Okay. And... It's not for lack of miracles. Unbelief isn't caused by lack of miracles. It's caused by hardness of heart. Amen. Okay, so the people in John 6 saw a miracle, a couple of miracles. That's right. Okay, the multiplication of the bread, the walking in water, all these things. But the word in the Greek uh, for grumble, gangudzo, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for they grumbled in the wilderness, and there's a connection. So here they all saw the miracles. How many people came out of Egypt without seeing a miracle? Right. Zero. Right. The whole Exodus was a miracle. They saw a miracle every day when the manna showed up. Yeah. And then it would actually last over Sabbath that one time. So there was miracle after miracle in the wilderness, but yet they turned against Moses. They grumbled. 
Yeah. They got sick of the bread. So we don't want this. We're demanding something else. We want meat. You, you know the story. Well, so John 6 purposely is drawing on that. And Jesus comes to reveal himself as the bread of life. And, they, and they're actually bringing it up. Yeah. Moses gave us bread, forgetting that in their corporate serendipity. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't like that either. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. and, uh, and so this whole thing is, if you look at the wilderness wanderers, who ended up being the faithful believers? A small handful. Yeah. They died in the wilderness, but you had Caleb and Joshua. Yeah. And right. Uh, Moses, Aaron, and so on. And the same thing happens in John 6. So there's a total play on the wilderness. That's right. Jesus proves who he is. He's the one Moses spoke of. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who brings salvation. And only a few people stayed with him. Just like in the wilderness, only a few people stayed with Moses. Amen. And foreshadowing that when it comes to the kingdom of God, the majority of people, no matter how many miracles they see, no matter what happens, are going to say, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to be religious. I'm not going to follow these Christians. Right. They're offensive. Um, so yeah. Yeah. this isn't shocking. That's right. So John 6 tells us that if anybody does come, it's because of a work of grace. Amen. Using God's means, which is the word of God proclaimed to them. That's right. Exactly. So, yeah, I think we should be all encouraged to be like those who said, where else do we have to go? Like Peter, fear the ones with the words of eternal life. Those are those who are saved, and it's all by God's grace. Okay, so let's talk about where we disagree with some of covenant theology, in particular Calvin, because we just talked about where we do agree. So I'm just going to lay out just kind of a smattering of where we disagree. It's not designed to be exhaustive. But let's begin with talking about the relationship between the covenants. In covenant theology, much of covenant theology that the Reformed tradition has sees everything broken between really two covenants. The first covenant is what they deem a covenant of works. So this is Adam and Eve prior to the fall in the garden. Everything after the fall is determined to be, in their scheme, a covenant of grace. Okay, so whether it's the Noahic covenant, whether it's the Davidic covenant, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant, all of that would be under the rubric of the covenant of grace. Yeah, I'm sorry, Adam. Actually, with the, the covenant of works, uh, they, treat, they treat the uh, Mosaic covenant as a new administration of the covenant of works. Uh, and so uh, the Mosaic right. covenant and the Adamic covenant uh, that they consider uh, is under the rubric of covenant of works. Uh, and so he gave the Ten Commandments to Adam, and they'll, they'll point to like Romans 2. Uh, but then all of the others are the covenant of grace, uh, yeah. administrations of the covenant of grace. Thanks, Adam, for that distinction, because it's interesting. In my readings, I've always seen them lump the Mosaic covenant. For example, um, Kaiser, he'll lump the Mosaic covenant also in the covenant of grace. And his, his argument is that the law is graciously given. The law is an extension of God's grace. Um, those who are going to be justified under the Mosaic covenant 
are going to be justified by his grace. And I would, I would affirm that. That's because Kaiser yeah. doesn't fit under traditional covenant oh, okay. theology. So like in the Westminster Confession of okay, Faith, good. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant is considered a new administration. Oh, okay, good. Like Thank you for the clarification. Or a dispensation of the, okay. uh, the covenant of, of works. And so they'd see Adam given the Ten Commandments, and okay. he and his sons had to follow the, the Ten Commandments, and uh, they try and use Romans uh, 2 sure. uh, for, uh, for that. Yeah. Now, under that rubric, Adam, let me, let me ask you this, and I'm glad you're here. Under that rubric, they tend to blur the distinction between the Mosaic Covenant, though, and the New Covenant. For example, in the Covenant theology, they will say, for example, there are three aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. They will say there's the the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral law. And what they will claim is that only two aspects of it were gotten rid of and that there's still this moral law. And what we are saying is it's not so much that there were three aspects of the law, but that it was really seen as one and that the entirety of it was replaced and now we're under the law of Christ. Not that they were not bound by the law of God, but that if you violated under the Mosaic Covenant the ceremonial law, you were a sinner. If you violated the civil law, for example, they had cities of refuge in uh, Numbers 35. So Numbers 35, Israel was commanded to have six cities of refuge. And the idea is if the avenger came, if you had accidentally shed someone's blood, you could find refuge in one of the cities and therefore be spared, at least until you had a hearing. Okay, So you see that in Numbers 35. If they didn't follow God's ordinance and build that, they were sinning before God. Now today, are we claiming that we have to build a city of refuge? Are we sinning if we don't build a city of refuge? Well, no. But my claim is, what they would say is that aspect of the law is civil. The ceremonial aspect would be like the, uh, the, the different aspects of the cult. In other words, being in the temple, the sacrifices, etc. We don't have to do that today. They also would, though, say that the moral law is still for today. What we're claiming is that the entirety of the law has been fulfilled in Christ. It's been replaced. As covenant. A, as a covenant. And now we're under the new covenant. So why don't you just speak to that? Because I yeah, think that's so very the, helpful. The, the issue there, uh, I, I think you explained that uh, well, yeah. is because they see the Ten Commandments given to Adam and his descendants in creation, uh, and that's the beginning of the covenant of works, yeah. uh, they point to Romans 2 and conscience and the law. Uh, and so they'll make, they'll make connections uh, yeah. between those. Uh, they want to say that th- that that moral framework for moral conduct uh, that we're still to, to follow that. Yeah. And in some ways, they almost, if you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, I have something to send you and Bob, they, yeah. they almost come to our position, but it's because they give the Ten Commandments in creation. Okay. Uh, and so they will say things where they're, they're, they're so close where they'll, they'll say, but like not as, not as a covenant. Not yeah. as a legal binding like covenant. They Amen. want to say, but not without the curse. We're no longer under the curse of the law. Yeah. We're no longer uh, under that co- uh, covenant at times, but then they still want to, uh, they, they don't grasp the, the full import that as a legal binding covenant, it has been done away with. Yeah. Uh, in its entirety, we are not under uh, the Mosaic covenant or what they would call the, the covenant of works. 
but there is, uh, there are standards for morality and what Jesus teaches his people in following him that most of the, the commandments are reaffirmed, but they're a different context. For instance, honoring your father and mother, yeah. uh, what was the penalty for that? That's part yeah. of the moral law. Death. death. If yeah. you struck your, your parents, uh, they were to be put to death. And so there's even been a change there. Right. Uh, there were uh, commandments that you were put to death for, uh, for violating the Sabbath. The man like picked up the, the sticks on the Sabbath and was put to death. And so there have been changes uh, within the law that even they, on some level, have to admit, unless they're right. going to take right. like, a full theonomist position. Yeah, amen. So one thing and that so we they, would they say... Come, they come close on some things, but it's because they try and say Adam had the Ten Commandments, uh, including the Sabbath, uh, that that's yeah. still like a moral... Uh, that's still a moral principle or commandment that we should yeah. keep today, but it's been moved to the first day of the week, which right. you can't establish in the New Testament. Right, amen, well said. So here, here's a better way of thinking of it. Think of the law, the Reformed tradition sees it as the civil, ceremonial, and moral aspects, and they look at just two of them have gone away under the New Covenant, the moral is still with us. Instead of seeing it that way, the way the New Covenant depicts it is that the entirety of it has been gotten rid of, and much of the moral aspect has been reinstituted in Christ. And so what we do is we have a repudiation of the entirety of the Mosaic Covenant by the Apostle Paul. But you also have a replacement of that covenant with the New Covenant so that you're not lawlessness. So go from repudiation to replacement, and then something called reappropriation. In other words, there are things that were immoral under the Old Covenant that still are. And there are even passages in the Mosaic Covenant that were used. For example, do not muzzle the ox that's treading out the grain. God was really concerned that they would mistreat the animal that was providing food for them. Paul reapplies that to say you have to support those who are feeding you the Word of God. By the way, that seems self-serving. It's just the one that popped into my mind. So I'm not saying it for that reason. (laughs) It's just the one that keeps coming into my mind, so I apologize for that. But are you with me? So, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, we got one over here. And then, uh, yeah, go ahead. And then I'll come back to you, Ruth. Dana. The, the, the covenant theologians have, have trouble with which aspects of the Mosaic law are carried forward. I mean, exactly. They, they, they say that some aspects were carried forward, but they were changed. Like, like, That's right. Like Adam mentioned, the, the, the Sabbath to Sunday. And then there's, you'll, yeah. talk, you'll talk later about baptism. Well, they, they say circumcision became baptism. So that's why they have infant baptism. Exactly. That's right. Well said. Very good. Yep. Excellent. I'm sorry, Ruth, you had something. Eric is fast now. His back is I better. Look at him move. I'm getting a, a little <laughs> workout today. Yeah. I was just going to say, I don't think you should apologize because, as we know, we faced some of that previously. It's actually important for us to know how important Oh, that yeah, is. I know. Thank and you. And it that. happens in churches all the time. I know of a church that's going through it right now, and so I'm grateful for what God has done here. Th- thanks, Ruth. I appreciate sure, that. Can I, can I just support one last thing you'll say? Sure, yeah. I'll be quiet for a while. Um, <laughs> you, you, you point to Corinthians. Yeah, I, I, first lo- Corinthians I love that passage because as you read through it, he gives yeah. illustrations. Uh, the ox, you, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Yeah. Uh, and then Paul says, uh, does God care about uh, oxen or does he care about people? That's a lesser to greater argument. God yeah. does care about oxen. Right. Uh, but he's saying he cares more about people. Uh, people are more important. They're made in his image. That's right. Then he says, even uh, the, uh, the priests 
uh, he gives illustration for them that th- yeah. uh, that they received bread in the temple, the That's Levites, right. uh, for the work that they did. And so Paul and Barnabas should. And Amen. then he turns to uh, the Lord. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the Lord taught this. Yeah. Uh, and so he, go, he goes to Christ. And so it's consistent with the new covenant teaching. It's consistent with Jesus' teaching. That's why Paul's able to, uh, to reapply those things and learn from them. But it's like, wait, oxen uh, treading out the grain. That sounds kind of civil. Hmm. Uh, and <laughs> then the, right. the, the priest getting their bread. Well, that sounds kind of ceremonial. That's uh, right. That's right. And so it's, you can't just separate uh, all, all of those things. Right. It's as legal code. Uh, and it's not just a matter also of legal bits, but the law of the Torah was the, the five books of Moses. That's right. There's narrative, there's poetry, but the, the binding uh, covenant. Amen. Well said. So now what I want to do is I want to turn to a passage that shows that, in fact, our categories are correct, that the Mosaic law is a covenant in its entirety has been replaced. However, the Mosaic law as scripture will always be profitable for the people of God. Law as scripture will always be used to save the people of God and to sanctify the people of God. In fact, one of the passages that comes to my mind is, do you remember in 2 Timothy 3.15? Paul says to Timothy, he says, you've known the sacred scriptures from your youth, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, what scriptures was Paul referring to? He was referring to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament scriptures, the scripture, the, the law in scripture converts the soul. So we'll always have it as scripture. And I want to show you a passage that shows this understanding that the law as a covenant should be seen as completely replaced, but the law as scripture will always be with us. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans three nineteen through 21. It's a good passage, I think, to show this. Romans three nineteen through 21. Romans 3, we'll start in verse 19. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Now, let me just stop there in verse 19 for a moment. Notice the law speaks to those who are under the law. Who was under the law? Was it the Gentiles or the Jews? Well, it was the Jews, wasn't it? It was the Israelites. They were under the law. And he's referring there to the Mosaic law. Now, notice the purpose statement. It's so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. I think implicit in Paul's argument in Romans 2 and 3 is, well, let me just back up. Let's ask ourselves the question, how can the Israelites being under the law of Moses shut the mouth of the entire world? In other words, this always troubled me when I would read that passage. I would say, well, wait a minute, how come the Israelites violating the law and being indicted by the law, how does that indict the Gentiles who don't have the law? Are you with me? Because he says very clearly here that all of the world may be accountable to God. Well, implied is a greater to lesser argument. The implication is if the greater people, Israel, who are God's chosen, who are given the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are given the greatest expression of God's law ever up until that point, the Mosaic law, if that could not bring about righteousness, how much less are the Gentiles who are far off going to be able to come to righteousness by some form of works? That's the implicit argument. So that's how 
the Mosaic law, the greatest law at that time given to God's chosen people can shut the mouth of the entire world. The idea is if Israel doesn't fare well under the Mosaic law, Gentiles are going to fare, they're going to fare even worse being far off from God. That's implied. So verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Stop there. This is something that Calvin was very good on. He, he would call this the first use of the law, that the law functions like a mirror, that it's designed to show us precisely that we cannot earn salvation, that we cannot work in a way that's pleasing to God, that by works no man can be justified. So now he goes on to verse 21. He says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Notice there in verse 21, in my opinion, you have a distinction between the law is a binding legal code. He says, apart from the law, notice the righteousness of God has been manifested, meaning it's been clearly shown. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets. The second use of law is certainly that of Scripture. So the law is a binding legal code, couldn't save you. And in fact, this righteousness has now been made manifest. It's by grace alone. And that's evidenced by the law and Scripture and the prophets. Anytime you see typically the law, prophets, and the writings, or sometimes it's just the law and the prophets, it's a reference to the Scriptures. So does everyone see there in verse 21, you have a distinction between the law as a binding legal code and the law and Scripture. We'll always have the law of Scripture, but it's not a binding legal code. And as Adam and Bob and all of us are saying here, it's the entirety of the Mosaic law that was replaced. Now, one other passage I want you to turn to is turn your book, your Bibles to Galatians 4, 21 through 26. I want you to see in Galatians 4 how the Mosaic covenant is really seen as a covenant that is inferior to that of the new that the new covenant really is a covenant of freedom and the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is seen as a covenant of bondage. And again, before you read this, we read it together here, Galatians 4, 21 through 26, Paul elsewhere is not putting down the Mosaic law as if it's somehow deficient in and of itself. In fact, in Romans 7, he says that the law of Moses is holy, righteous, in good. The problem is because you and I are born dead sinners in Adam, the Mosaic law, when it mixes with us, it doesn't produce righteousness, it produces sin. So the issue isn't the law per se, it's the idea that we, we can't do the law. But here he's going to show that the law, he's going to use some neat analogy here, he's going to show that the law of Moses was in fact deficient compared to the new covenant. I just want you to think about that as we talk about the relationship of the Mosaic covenant to the new. Galatians 4, 21 through 26, Paul says, tell me, you who want to be under the law. Now, stop there. Who was he talking to? He was talking to the, those who were going to follow the Judaizers and adopt circumcision. He says, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. Now, who was the bondwoman? Anyone want to take a guess there? Hagar. Hagar, that's right. And what son did she have? Ishmael, right? Now, who was the one by the free woman? Sarah. Sarah, and what son did she have? 
Isaac, the son of promise. Exactly. So he's, now he's, he's contrasting the two. Now notice verse 23. He says, But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now let's stop there. Why is the one regarded, this would be Ishmael, of course, with Hagar, why was that birth according to the flesh? Well, that was according to the works of man. Because didn't God promise that Abraham was going to have a son? Well, Abraham and Sarah take it upon themselves to help God out. Now, before we put Abraham and Sarah down, remember, they're really old. And they're given this promise, and they think, well, maybe God is expecting us to do something. I'm just trying to put it in context that it's not so far-fetched to think that this is impossible because they were too old to have kids. And yet, God had promised that they were going to supernaturally have one. And so the supernatural promise is Isaac, but the work of the flesh, the work of human ability, that's Ishmael. Now notice what Paul does. He uses this as an analogy. Verse 24, he says, This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants. Okay, now let's stop there. The covenants that he's going to be contrasting is the Mosaic covenant with the new covenant. He says, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, that's the Mosaic covenant, bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. So let's just stop there for a moment. If you go back to the Mosaic law, you're a slave. You're of the flesh. You're attempting to be justified by works. That's how serious it was to go back to any part of the Mosaic law because it was an implicit, it was an explicit denial of the sufficiency that we have in Christ alone. So if you go back to the Mosaic law in any of its form, you're going back to slavery. And Bob taught us very well when we were being taught this um, some years ago when you did Galatians, probably three. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Now, verse 25, it says, Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Okay, so stop there. Now Jerusalem is lumped in with the old covenant. Why? Because the majority don't believe. But notice he says, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So here Paul is clearly contrasting two covenants. The Mosaic covenant will bring you into slavery. But the new covenant, if you come to Christ and his work, you have freedom. And so do you see then how dangerous it is to go back to any form of trying to abide by the Mosaic covenant as a binding legal code? So again, let's do our move. What did the New Testament writers do with the Mosaic covenant? They did three things. They repudiate it as a binding legal code. They replace it with the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9, and then they reappropriate it as Scripture. So those three R's, that's, I think, and by the way, that was from a book that was recommended by Adam. It was by a man named Brian Rosner. I want to give him full credit. He was the guy who came up with those categories. And uh, just like Bob comes up with categories, sometimes these categories are very helpful helpful for us. Like Bob had one for means of grace. Three things are true of a means of grace. Command given by God, promise, and it's accessible to all. Sometimes someone just gets it right. It's very succinct. This Rosner had it right. 
repudiate, replace, reappropriate. Yes, Adam. Yeah, and Eric, uh, at, uh, in verse 21, uh, you see this too, uh, just to support what you're saying. Uh, s- uh, say to me, uh, you who, who desire, who want to be under the law, so they want to be under the law uh, yeah. as, as covenant. They want, they want to keep, keep the, the covenant, uh, the law of Moses. Yep. Do you not listen to the law? And now he's going to draw an illustration from which book of the Bible? Where, where do you find Hagar and Sarah? Yeah, amen. The law. Genesis. Yeah. Five books of Moses. And so there you go, the law. He, there, they want to be under the law as covenant, yeah. but he's going to, uh, do you not listen to the law? <laughs> Scripture. He's, he's going to draw an illustration as a source of wisdom uh, to teach and instruct them. And here it's dealing with the issue of circumcision, which Moses uh, reaffirmed and taught to the people Amen. Uh, after the Exodus when they were coming out of, out yeah. of Egypt. Yeah. Uh, and so by receiving circumcision, they're going back under the, the law. Yeah, amen. Wow, well said. Good reading, Adam. Thank you. Yeah, very good. Um, Norm, you've got something. So when we read in Psalms and we see David talking about, uh, he's meditating, oh, how I love thy law. Yeah. And, and we know David was not looking to the law to be saved, he was looking forward to, to Christ and that. How, yeah. how do we see that where he's talking about how he loves the law? How, yeah. How does that apply to us? Yeah, you know, certainly the, uh, the law was, was binding. And as I mentioned, I don't know if you heard the, um, I don't know if you were there, Norm, uh, when we did Good Friday, but the, the Israelite who was justified was always justified by faith. And the one who loves the law was certainly the one who loved God's commands. And if you were under the Mosaic Covenant, you were justified certainly by faith in Yahweh. In fact, we had read Leviticus 17.11 for even the atonement came from the hand of Yahweh. So the Israelite who was justified wasn't simply the Israelite who sacrificed the animal, but he was the one who trusted in Yahweh and sacrificed the animal. So the point is, The Jew who was truly justified did love the law, and they did abide by it, not in the attempts that, well, if they abide by it, they earn it of their own merit, but because they had a faith in the Yahweh who justifies. Does that make sense? So, yeah, Bob. Uh, I think you also may have there a metonymy. Uh, When David is saying, I love thy law, he's not... Restricting that only to say Leviticus, exactly. It's but the word. There would be the fact that God has spoken. Amen. And so it's the word of God. It's this, the scripture that what they had that no one else had was that God came and spoke. Amen. And that's Hebrews one one through three for us. And so David's using the law there. I believe to encompass Tanakh. Sure, scripture. Which, some of which had not yet been written. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Uh, Eric, I, I just want to read this last part of Psalm 119, which I yeah. think will, will reinforce what you're saying. Sure. But under the, the Old Covenant, they had a provision uh, on the Day of Atonement. I think amen. like you were saying, yeah. uh, the, the, the priest will make atonement and I will forgive them. That's right. Now it was year after year, and so it was, it was provisional. It, wasn't, it never perfected them. Right. So there's look to a, a better sacrifice. Amen. But he also circumcised hearts under the Old Covenant. That's right. But it wasn't promised to all 
of the people like in the new covenant. Then they shall all know me. They shall not each say to his brother, know the Lord, for they shall all, all know, know me. me. Yeah, Under the new covenant, it's everyone. Yeah, but the very end of Psalm 119, uh, this great thing about loving yeah. God's law, his commandments, and how, yeah. how righteous they are. Uh, ordinances, teaching, wisdom, it's characterized in many ways. Uh, verse 169, let me cry... Uh, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. He's calling to God to give him understanding. Amen. This doesn't come from, uh, from himself. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. God Amen. is the one who teaches. Uh, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. I mean, who can deny that? Uh, yeah. Let your hand be uh, ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. Yeah. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. He's not saying he, he's perfect. Right. He's gone astray like a lost sheep. Uh, seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And so this is not one who is uh, just who is, sees himself as uh, perfect and righteous in God's sight, who doesn't need atonement, who doesn't need uh, the provision for forgiveness, who doesn't need God to circumcise his heart. That's right. all throughout it. And That's so, right. Uh, I, I think it's very right. And we would say with him, uh, oh, Lord, I love your law. I love your Amen. instruction and teaching. And not That's just right. the commandment bits. Yeah, that, but all his, his entire word. That's right. Well said, Adam. And we could say it today. We love his law. The law is scripture, the law of Christ. We're not antinomians. We're under the law of Christ. One of the rubs and attacks against even the Apostle Paul was that he was some antinomian. He was not an antinomian. He was under the law of Christ. He went from one lawgiver to another. He went from Moses to Christ. That's what he did. So he's not under, is Christ not God? So if you're under the new covenant, you're not an antinomian. One other passage I thought of, Adam, as you were saying that, to show, Norm, that salvation wasn't simply by the rote act done, a great passage to see the proof of that is in Isaiah 1. Um, you don't have to turn to it, but remember in Isaiah 1? Um, I'll just read it real quick, verse 11. God says, what are your multitude of sacrifices to me? Remember, he's had enough of their sacrifices. Well, if the sacrifices in and of themselves provided atonement, he could never have said that. So it wasn't the act of the sacrifice itself. The issue was the heart. Now, don't get me wrong. You had to sacrifice if you really belonged to Yahweh. But it wasn't the sacrifice itself that justified you. It was the faith. And that was the problem, is that they were far away from God in their heart. So when David loves the law, I look at that as a natural result of one who has faith. And um, as Adam astutely points out, the, the implications even in the rest of the text show that he knew that he couldn't earn it, but that he was trusting upon a Yahweh, this great God who forgave. Yeah, so I hope, hope that helps. Yeah, yeah, Brian. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and share a super simplistic analogy that yeah. I came up with in a conversation that was very haphazard about this very subject. Yeah. And in cultures like Buddhism, you have a sense of the very righteous and the much lesser righteous. Yeah. That has nothing to do with the Bible. Okay? 
And I imagine much of that same sort of grading on a curve happened in Judaism. You had your, your top, and then you had this bell curve, and you had everybody else under it. Okay? So some people get A pluses, and some people get Fs on that haphazard, natural human curve of, oh, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief like that guy. I'm better than that person. Sure. What the law is, is an absolute grading system that gives everybody on the bell curve a big fat F. Yeah, amen. (laughs) So now you've got everybody moved into the category of failure. That's right. And now the question becomes, how are you going to make the grade, so to speak. Right. And the only way is through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Amen. Amen. So the law still tells us these are all the ways you're a failure and these are all the ways you need a Messiah. Amen. But you need a Messiah. Yeah. You're not getting anywhere on the grading system at all if you stick with the law. Well said. It's going to always give you an F. Amen. Well said. And that's exactly what we saw in that Romans 3. Yeah, yeah very good. I, lo- I like your bell curve uh, analogy. Very good. I like it. Yeah, I'm sorry, Eric. Just want to, uh, we're really having a lot of good conversation. I want to yeah. just add this one thing, and I think this is true. Okay, when we say that the law has been replaced, or the covenant has been replaced, that's the Mosaic covenant. Yeah. But that does not mean that we are replacement theologians. In other words, the Jewish people are covered under the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. It, you know, so this yeah. is, we don't want to confuse this with replacement theology. Yeah, so re- replacement theology technically is the replacement of Israel with the church. The, the church is Israel, and therefore there are no literal promises that are going to be given to Israel. Uh, quickly, the problem with that, of course, is Paul promises there are literal promises coming still to national ethnic Israel in Romans eleven twenty six. So, yeah, very good. Um, but another thing that you brought up there, let's just look at one more passage to show that this replacement, again, it's not replacement theology, that's replacing the Israel with the church, but there is a replacement of the old covenant, the old law with the law of Christ, and a great passage that shows that is the 1 Corinthians 9 that we've been talking about. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21, if you will. It's a very important passage. This is one you want to have in your back pocket, so to speak. This is one you want to kind of have committed to memory. You know, by the way, as you're turning there, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21, a lot of the, um, if you ever look at refrigerator verses, you know, the refrigerator magnet verses, mine, mine would be passages like this. And I think it's just because when you have to do theology, you end up coming up with... But a lot of times you'll see refrigerated magnet verses are about something great for us. That's wonderful. But this is an important refrigerator magnet verse because it helps us understand the relationship between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. Notice what Paul says. Now remember in 1 Corinthians 9, he's talking about becoming all things to all people so that by all possible means he might save some. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law. Now, stop there for a moment. What uh, law is he referring to there? Moses. The law of Moses, certainly. Absolutely. And then notice the purpose statement. He says, so that I might win those who are under the law. In other words, what he's saying, so stop there. He's getting rid of any needless offense. 
He's getting, now, when it came to, for example, you had Judaizers said, you have to have circumcision to be right with God, he, he would put his foot down. No. As soon as it became a gospel issue, but when he wanted to go present the gospel, he eliminated any offense so that he could get a hearing. That's Paul's point. He's not compromising the gospel. But notice in verse 21, very interestingly, he says, to those who were without law, these would be the Gentiles, he became as one without the law, though, listen carefully, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. So there's the replacement. You went from the Mosaic law to the new covenant. You went from Moses at Sinai to Christ at transfiguration. This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, God said in the Mount of Transfiguration. And Bob, yeah, why don't you explain, I I love your analogy between the... uh, or the reference to the two mountains. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the idea of a transcendent God who yeah, gives who law. Yeah, who speaks, right. So the two mountains, if we can get things down to what we can remember, like the grading on the curve, that was a good one. Yeah. Um, the two mountains are Sinai and Transfiguration. Sinai, God came and spoke to Moses tangibly as a man speaks to his friend. That was God giving law. Moses gave us the Pentateuch, and then there were the, you know, the writings and the prophets of the Old Covenant. And on Sinai, I mean on Transfiguration, we don't know exactly which mountain, Yeah, uh, God affirms that Christ is the one Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18, 15. Is that the right yeah, reference? Yeah, you know. God will raise up a prophet like me, when he does, listen to him. So Moses predicted his own replacement. Yeah. Okay? Now, just in case we think we might be getting it wrong, on Transfiguration, God himself, who's the one who had spoken on Sinai, said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So God affirms that Jesus is the greater new Moses and that the new covenant is given by Christ and its sacrifice was his once for all death for sin. And we might yeah. add Hebrews 8.13. Yeah, it's been absolutely... Where I love Hebrews, as you probably know. Yeah. I keep ending up in Hebrews when I'm preaching. Uh, <clears throat> There's, there's this whole long citation in Hebrews 8 about the new covenant, but then it says in verse 13, by way of explanation, by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is old, and what is old and aging is about to disappear. Yes. Now we might say, well, why is he saying it that way? Because it's very clear from Hebrews that the temple was still in operation. Yeah. And apostasy, according to Hebrews, will be to go back to that. Now, why did they want to go back to the temple? Because it was tangible. Smells and bells and costumes and the high priest and ceremony and all of this thing that can be seen. And everything that we have is in heaven, according to Hebrews. And, And to go back to what is said it's going to disappear soon, would be 
to say, I can't believe in Jesus. He went to heaven. I can't see him. And then you'd be just like the Israelites who wouldn't even believe under the old covenant and made the golden calf because they couldn't see Moses. Right, right. Okay, this is so clear. And so Reformed theology wants to take, uh, instead of saying there's a new covenant that replaces the old, they want to rework the old in certain aspects of it and call it the new. Exactly. And so their infant baptism is their new circumcision. Their Sunday is their new Sabbath. And they create their own attendant Sabbath laws that they make up about what you can and can't do on Sabbath, which is now Sunday, in our hometown. I don't know if my mom remembers this. But when SA station came in on Highway 60 that goes through Sheldon, Iowa, there were religious people out protesting that SA was coming to Sheldon because they knew they were going to be open on Sunday, and they thought that was a sin, and then God would be angry with Sheldon, Iowa, exactly. because people driving through town could buy gas. Exactly. That's how they interpreted this. They wanted to be lawgivers for everybody. Exactly. And they're going to tell you what you can and cannot do, just like they did in Matthew 11 and 12 of Jesus. That is a great way to end. That's exactly what I want to leave you all with, is that's a disagreement that we have. Again, Reformed, if you have the law as ceremonial, civil, and moral, think about for them, the Ten Commandments are part of the moral law, and Sabbath-keeping is on there. So therefore, they will tell you that you're sinning if you're doing any form of work, for example, on Sunday, which they claim is the new Sabbath. What we're saying is that the entirety of the Mosaic Covenant was replaced. And your Sabbath rest, according to Hebrews 4, is not found in a day, but it's found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you came to Sabbath rest. And you have the fulfillment of the entire law. We're not lawless. We're under the law of Christ. It'll always be wrong to murder. It will still be wrong to mistreat your parents and not honor them. That's what we're going to see in Ephesians when Bob gets to it. There are a lot of things under the new covenant or under the old covenant that are still wrong under the new covenant, but it's an entire replacement. So you and I, as we go out the door today, the way we apply that is by saying, if it's not bound under the new covenant, I'm not bound to it. That's the key, binding and loosing. If you're not bound under the new covenant... You're not bound to it. Why? Because we're under a new lawgiver, the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for all. I love the sharing. Oh, I'm sorry, Christy, I forgot. We have your handouts. Notice your handouts. It'll see up in the upper right-hand corner. Please bring this with you the next time. The reason why is obviously it's going to take us a while to get through all of this. We only got through, what, uh, two slides or whatever, three. So it's going to take a while. So just please bring that with you, if you will. But God bless you. Thank you for the robust discussion. And uh, Bob and Adam and everyone who contributed, thank you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is clear, that we can know what covenant that we're under, what lawgiver we're under. And we pray, Lord, that we would not submit to false binding, nor would we bind anyone to what they're not bound to. We pray, Lord, that we would realize the freedom that we have under the new covenant, and that we would be those who teach the doctrines of Christ and not lead people back to Sinai. We pray that we would be that people. In Jesus' name, amen.